HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi there, I'm Greg from Kapow. Visit us at kapow.com to check out our unique collection of everyday reusable products designed to help you do more with less. C-U-P-P-O-W dot com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
All right. That was just Bombayo, uh, who will be in studio live later on. Uh, my name is Greg Bresnitz. I'm one half your host for Snacky Tunes. Today is all about Puerto Rico. Um, we have the founder of the Puerto Rico Meets NYC Fest, along with some chefs and mixologists, in studio today. Uh, do you want to go around the room and announce yourselves and say uh, where you're from? Sure. Marie Elena Martinez. I am the founder of Meets New York City. What's up, guys? My name's Nolo. I'm the founder of Mofongo NY. Hi, guys. My name is uh, Pedro Alvarez from Alcor Foods in Puerto Rico, uh, processing plant of uh, sausage, traditional sausage longaniza. Hi, and my name is Lynette Marrero. I'm a New Yorican from Brooklyn. I am your mixologist today, shaking up some rum cocktails. Um, so before we get into the festival, I think it'd be really great to kind of set the stage of traditionally, like, what is Puerto Rican food? Like, let's say in the 80s and before, um, if I were to go down there, what, what would I expect to fi- have expected to find? Well, well uh, before that years, you know, what, what you can find is very, very traditional food, but we prepare it at, at home. You know, and the, what is uh, called the fondas, the arroz, habichuela, really the traditional foods of uh, of the island, the mofongo. So that that's what's really all about uh, going out to eating. But then after, we we have a, a markup in the history, like uh, Alfredo Ayala. Uh, we consider him like the grandfathers of uh, of the modern uh, Puerto Rican cuisine in Puerto Rico. So uh, finishing the 70s, starting the 80s, you know, this is where this uh, chef start to to add new techniques to the Puerto Rican food, but uh, preserving the the tradition and the flavors, you know. And and he started to evolve a new experience uh, with the, with the food. So and so if, if before he started uh, updating. That like, what would I, what would my great great grandmother have made for me? What would I expect it on the the table? Yeah, I think Manolo can talk to you about <laughs> that because Manolo I mean, have a very very deep roots. I mean, I, I was I wasn't born family. before the '80s, yeah. you know, but I, I can't comment on that because uh, where I'm from, I was telling Pedro earlier, I'm from the the countryside of the island, mm-hmm. some would call it. So, and it's really centered on family and. Uh, all the joy of just celebrating life and what our tradition is. So my grandma, you would see her doing fricasses, you would do asopao. So it's all these soups that were just like really dear to your soul and it just brings back all these memories. And it's all, all everything we found was all the local livestock, everything that they were, they were in the fields just grabbing themselves. So it's more about where you're from and your surroundings, mm-hmm, you know, yeah. and, Mm-hmm. what you got from there because back in the day we didn't have they didn't have as much reach to get ingredients from different parts of the island you had to actually just succumb to what you had in your backyard mm-hmm. so it's it's more about it's more about what you had in your backyard and you know sharing it with your family and making making something out of nothing so what were some of the dishes and flavor profiles that you grew up with well, I, I grew up with mofongo, which is what I make, uh, and I brought it here to New York. Uh, which is delicious. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's really simple. We get that from our African heritage. It's, uh, back in the day, it was called fufu, and basically Africans, when they came over here, they were given straps, uh, scraps. So what they would do is they would grind up spices, any root vegetables that you can find, and then all that whatever slave food, uh, all that like necessity food is actually what redefine what our food is nowadays you know now you have a lot of really amazing chefs just putting a modern twist and 
mixing it up with French influences, with Asian influences, but it always goes back to the same thing. And I think that's the part of it, you know, keeping that culture, keeping that heritage, and honoring what we had in the past. That's what Puerto Rican food is about. And was the food, when they didn't have much reach, would it be like the same dishes throughout the year, or was there a certain seasonality to the, to the dishes? <laughs> Yeah, this uh, during, for example, during the we eat a, a lot of pork during the whole year, but especially in Christmas season is where you're going to find these uh, uh, beautiful family parties where you we do the whole roasted lechon, mm -hmm. you know, and we starting to see the what is the arroz con gandules with the guineitos en escabeche, la ensalada de papa de la mamá. So we starting to see, especially in, in the Christmas season, this kind of dishes, you know. And uh, Pedro, I know that you went to, to Italy. Um, yes. What did you learn there that, you know, you brought back with you um, that wasn't, you know, potentially found in Puerto Rican cuisine? Well, over there when I arrived, I, I, I run basically all the stations in, in the different restaurants that I work in. And so I, I learned a lot of technique. You know, uh, using well the the French ing uh, the, the 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 fresh ingredients. Uh, so that's that's what I brought back uh, to Puerto Rico. Uh, a, a part of the of the northern Italian cuisine and all the flavors and, and, and the dishes. You know, I came back to Puerto Rico and, and apply that techniques in uh, with the Puerto Rican flavors. For example, one one dish that I can tell you is we we have a lot of fun with the dish. We call it the cabrioli. So we. Uh, we make the ravioli with the cabro, so it's mm -hmm. goat stew mm -hmm. inside, you know, with this uh, mm -hmm. uh, sofrito flavors, <laughs> just, you know, yeah. and beer. Uh, Somehow that didn't make it back into the studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of time in preparation. Yeah, I'm not going to understand. Um, and, then, and then as it's been updated through um, the 70s and 80s and 90s and, and into this, like, what, what is emerging or, like, what is new to the, the cuisine and, and the, what is the new tradition? Well, uh, I can tell you that we are we there. There is this period after after Alfredo Ayala, as I told you, start to to become creative with the with the Puerto Rican cuisine, you know. And then we starting to receive a lot of influence, like modern, like came uh, Asian, Latino, you know, and different uh, influence. But now, what what is happening, you know, uh, that. We realize this generation realized that our our traditional food is already full of flavor. You know, uh, this generation which I belong, you know, uh, travel a lot. You know, I went to Europe. I have a lot of friends that came to the United States, South America, different areas, even Asia. You know, and uh, we agree when we come back that. The Puerto Rican food is is real tasty. You know, we put a, a lot of effort in in the in the flavor. So we have a, a great product, and we are mostly focusing on that. You know, to make sure that we do our traditional food good. You know, make it taste good, and and this is the the, the advantage that I I can say we have in, in this moment. I feel that uh, to add to what Pedro says, which is completely true, that my, my generation is going back to its roots. Uh, and we were talking about this the other night where we're going back to the fields. We're going back to our roots of buying, you know, produce from Los Placero and just going back and that connection where you had, you know, from the field straight to your kitchen instead of just, you know, all this processed stuff that's going in and we're, we're more aware of that. So I think with Puerto Rican food right now, 
other than the, all the advances and all the light that's been shining up on us, we're taking it back to what it usually is. So, so, so if you see us any weekend at Smorgasburg or any other events, we're mashing mofongo with wooden mortars. Mm-hmm. And we're doing it in a single one. I'm talking about every order, every order is mashed to, for, to, to order. Basically, where we can, any other person who just wants to make money off of it and can push 500, 600 orders, we would get some sort of machine to do it for you. Right. But we, I want that connection. And has the agriculture and farming business in Puerto Rico kind of kept kept up or adapted like, a, you know, in the States, you know, it went to big ag and now there's obviously been a rise to local farms and, and work, you know, chefs and restaurants, you know, getting farmers to plant special crops or grow special breeds. Have they fallen in step with you or is, you know, where is that in, in relation to the, the new movement? Yeah, in, in Puerto Rico, that is what is happening right now. And it's like the wave already come and it's getting bigger every, every, every day. You know, uh, as I tell you, this generation realized that. You know, if we want to bring ahead the economy of the island and get it stronger, you know, we 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 recognize after being like for years, uh, uh, most of the products came from outside Puerto Rico, and the agriculture was very affected. But now you see young guys, you know, they come out from the university yep. and maybe they have degrees in something else, but they coming back to, to the to the land, to work the land, you know. And uh, the chef, uh, at the same time, we are very aware of that and that what we're doing ties to make this happen, you know. And we have uh, a special uh, pieces of land that is producing what the chef asked for. Mm. You know, I need to, to grow this for my restaurant. You know, these guys, are, they are more than willing to, to do this kind of work to, to move their product with the restaurants. And where do you see the, the Puerto Rican food movement um, sitting in, like, the current, like, economic state of Puerto Rico and, like, you know, shifting the focus? Or like, do you see it as, like, a driver to helping it get back to where it needs to be? Or what role do you see food food playing? Definitely it's fundamental. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very strong column of, uh, of the economy because that's bring... Uh, first, uh, we start to eating better, you know, we start to getting, I say, healthier, you know, the, and, and this is what we transmit to the people. And uh, it's in, in different ways, it, it works with the with the agricultural area in the restaurant. Uh, at the same time, that's what we're doing here, shouting very loud what we are doing uh, in the island. So people as well come to visit us to to try this food and try what we are doing, you know. So this is another uh, economic area that he- get healthier as well. I just wanted to add that all of my chefs that came in for Puerto Rico Meets New York all were so adamant about the ingredients that they mm. brought. Uh, this one doesn't want the morcilla here. This one doesn't want the beef from this. This one right. doesn't want this kind of churrasco. This one doesn't want this kind of mangoes. And they brought so much ingredient with them because they're proud of what is actually being made there. Instead of always importing, they are growing. All of these chefs have plots of land, as Pedro was saying, and they brought it here, and you saw it over the dinners, over our events. I 
mean, really, really home-cooked and homegrown ingredient. And, and what is the background on for PR Meets NYC? Where did the idea come sure, to sure, from? Sure, sure, sure. So um, Meets New York City was a brand that was born last year with Baja Meets New York. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I, I felt that I, I travel a lot. My background is as a travel writer and food writer. And I was always welcomed into people's homes, no matter what the language was, by food. I mean, every table was always a welcome table. And I think that it's really hard for armchair travelers or for people who don't travel as much to really understand how important food is in the larger world, both as a connector and both as a a talking point in everyone's lives. So I thought that I live in the most amazing culinary city in the world with so many of these chefs that have come through here before and worked with many of these other guys. Let's see if we can bring them in and do mashup dinners where we can showcase what these destinations are doing. So Meets New York focuses on a destination, takes the time to really research the chefs that are doing interesting things there, pairs them with New York City chefs, brings them here to have a culinary spotlight on tourism. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to come back and talk about rum, and we're going to talk about some of the dishes that you might find, and then uh, some of the hopes and aspirations of what you want to convey to people through the festival. Um, Up first, we have a song from Conveyor, uh, who is on Snacky Tunes Live Volume 3. Stay tuned. Time. 
wish I ever told you. Serious man, I can't stop feeling. Hurrying back to 21 too. All right, welcome back. So the one thing we haven't touched on yet are the drinks in Puerto Rico. And I would have to say that rum is probably the most prevalent of alcohols there. Um, I'm not a big rum drinker until I went to Puerto Rico for the first time. And then I realized I just never really had the right rum. Um, So tell me about what kind of uh, preparation goes into making cocktails for a Puerto Rican event and, you know, some of the things that you're looking for in a a good rum. Absolutely. Um, And as touching on what um, our two chefs were talking about, the very first instance I ever saw of rum drinks is in the most famous book. And my mother has this book that's tattered. It's Comida Criollo. And it's like the Puerto Rican food Bible. And it's been translated into English for all of us first generation born here. (laughs) Um, And in the back, there's all these cocktails that go with the food. And it's it's rum-centric. And it's these wonderful cocktails that remind you of these home parties when you guys are talking about Christmas and the lechon and on the holiday time. And then when your mother makes the coquito and there's this like whole process and this pride of giving away these beautiful drinks that you create. Um, and rum is the center of that. You know, sugarcane and obviously the, the Caribbean is is that center for where rum is from. And I because rum is one of those ingredients that really expresses where it's from. You know, it's it can be made in so many different countries and so many places. Um, and, and James Beard said it's the most romantic of all the spirits in your closet. And I truly believe that because there's something about rum and the mystique. And when you look at the range of the rums in the Puerto Rico portfolio, you know, they are the drink. So you have the lighter crystal rums that are much, um, you know, you have in the coconut daiquiri, which is light and fresh. And you're sitting on an island and you want in a coconut because it's rehydrating. Or you want something really robust that really shows the intense aging, like the barlitos and those that are really aged because it happens so quickly in the humidity and the intensity of the heat and the sun of the islands but you get all those whiskey flavors and notes and and that's where you really start and I think just going back to what you find you know my grandmother would have a, a you know a passion fruit tree in her backyard and you just grab those passion fruits and squeeze them and have those just with rum and, and you it just be a part of your culture and that's really where it comes from is that accessibility to these wonderful fruits and ingredients um, that you have and that's where I, I love that that it's food and culture and seasoning and flavor and that's that really is the soul of Puerto Rican people. I feel like that word sazon is is our word to really own and embrace, and that comes through in in the different culinary aspects, whether food or, or spirits. So, when you guys are looking to make dishes to pair with rum, like what type of uh, flavor profiles are you going to play up um, to to pair the two together? Well, for example, the, we do a lot of uh, rum uh, uh, glazes mm. for, for meat, you know, and then we combine maybe with a little honey and we make this rum and honey reduction that goes to, uh, to glaze the meat. So that's the way, one example of the way we use it in the, in the, in the kitchen. For example, we can uh, marinate uh, as well with the melao, the, the meat, and that's our ingredients that... Uh, have to do with the with the rum, you know, that is an application. Yeah. So, uh, Marie, so one of the things that was really great is that you paired Puerto Rican chefs with American chefs, and like, what went into the 
the pairing of the two and you know what did you have any guidelines or restrictions on like what type of meals they had to produce I think what's most important when you pair chefs is that there's rapport I mm-hmm. think when you take anyone back in the kitchen you have to really know your way around you have to have kind of this camaraderie and also like a creative similarity um, where one doesn't think the other is totally and completely out there in the case of Puerto Rico so many of these chefs have kind of sued with other New York chefs. So it was easy. And many of the pairings are guys who have worked together in kitchens before. Um, Juan Jose Cuevas and Chef Didier Elena worked together at Elaine Ducasse and uh, Eric Rupert and Jose Santaya at Le Bernardin. So it, it, that was very easy. But in the case of someone like Pedro Alvarez, who hadn't worked with anyone here, I tried to figure out who here was um, of heritage. And J.J. Johnson is also kind of this young really interesting, creative guy, and I thought that they would rift well together. They had never met each other, and I went into that kitchen the other night after dinner, and it was just a love fest. It was one of those things where if you take the personalities, take what you know of their foods, and really line that up, you usually have a quite successful matchup. That's great. Well, I want to make sure I get an answer from you on this last, from all of you on the last question, but um, given the growth of Puerto Rican food and the, the exposure and the explosion of it, what is the one thing that you really want people to understand about the cuisine or the drinks um, or the chefs or the country that, you know, if, you could, if they could take one lesson with them, what would you like to impart on them? I would like to say that it's not just rice and beans. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> No, the thing is that uh, people people I have a lot of questions. If it's if it's spicy, they ask me, is spicy Peruvian food is spicy? I say no. We have uh, our food is uh, is got a lot of ingredients that is a very depth on flavors, and then. In, in the house, every every table, there is a bottle of pique on the table. So then if you want it spicy, you will add the pique, and everybody is very proud of their own pique that they make in the house, you know? <laughs> this is my this is my pique, no, this is my pique, you know? <laughs> who makes who makes it the best? Uh, well, in, in my house, actually, my father is the one that oh, made okay. the pique, so uh, <laughs> I respect that my father's pique is uh, the top one. Is, is the uh, recipe passed down, or is it like a deathbed? type of scenario no no it, it passed down <laughs> okay. you know we, we make it together but he's always in charge to, uh, to make it in the house okay I'll talk a little bit in depth of this question because that's that's part of my goal here in New York uh, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico and I moved out here and I think when we started this we obviously wanted people to understand more about our culture and more about who we were through food uh, as things progress in the island uh i hear a lot of people talking negative negativity about the island and there are so many positive things happening there are so many beautiful things happening so many so much growth in certain areas right that are not being highlighted and that's what i want to do with my 10 by 10 food stand here in new york and if i can get somebody to pay attention to what's really happening in the island and to see like pass for pass through like all the negativity that's happening and they see that we're happy people, we're loving people, we, we put effort into what we do, we, we bleed this, you know, and we're proud about what we do. That's what I want people to take back, you know? There's a, there's a lot of things with the food, but that's what I want people to know. There's so much more than what you just hear and read. Hmm. 
And I'll give a shout out to um, La Factoria, which is the top cocktail bar in Puerto Rico. And the the bartenders there work really hard. They literally have been creating on an island and sheltered away from the world. And they have gone out to search and to be part of the global cocktail community. And this week they're being honored in 50 best bars in London. And I'm going to be able to be there at that event and see, you know, my home country take home an award, something that's been really hard earned. And they're expressing their rums and they're so proud of everything and they're hard hard workers and I think that's really what's great is that there is this um, island that wants to be a part of the global community and is really working though internally to be the best they can be and be hard work and then present that to the world and I would say you know being the child of immigrant parents who, who moved here to Brooklyn to have a better life for me and my sisters and it's about that hard work that passion that go getting there's a mentality of intense work that that is indigenous to Puerto Rican people and I see that through the food and the culture and the drink and just a very proud community that's amazing well, I want to thank you all for taking time off from the festival, which is actually happening right now. I'm going to burn <laughs> here in the background. So I'm going to cut you all loose because I know that you have people to serve. So thank you for thank making you time. So thank you so much. Um, we have Bombayo uh, up live in studio next. But first off, a song from Lucius, who was in studio a couple years ago, live on Snacky Tunes. Only 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Bombayo live in studio. Welcome. Uh, would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Melinda. I'm co-founder of Bombayo, Melinda Gonzalez. And I'm Jose Ortiz, a.k.a. Dr. Drum. Uh, so for the people who don't know, what is Bomba Music? Well, Bomba Music is a music and dance and singing form. It's an artistic expression from Puerto Rico. It was derived from the enslaved Africans that arrived and were taken to Puerto Rico. And, um, you know, while on the, on the surface it looks like a entertainment and it's, it's, it is a lot of fun to dance, you know, it, it has a, a really strong cultural root and tells of the, the history of Puerto Rico that's oftentimes not spoken about in history books. Also, to add on to that, we're talking about a a music that is a hybrid of of culture on the island. And so there itself, there's a process there. So we could know that the bomba already, there's a fusion, right? But but then when it came to the island, it became a particular uh, uh, language, a tradition, and so you know, bom- you know, when we talk about the bomba, we're doing the you know, Puerto Rico has become the cradle of that of that music. And it was a traditional music. Um, how was it passed down, or how did people learn uh, the styles and the rhythm and the music? Well, the development of bomba started at least you know three hundred years ago. So this was the like you know, plant, sugar plantation era in Puerto Rico. And essentially, what you know, in terms of the the format, there's drumming. Uh, the there's a dancer that dances to the drum, and the the drummer marks the the dancer's movements. In traditional African dances uh, and other dances, it's usually the opposite, where the the dancer is following the drummer. In this case, it's the opposite. Um, and so the families all throughout the, the sugar plantations, and these are you know enslaved people living in in, in, in really dire circumstances, uh, kept this going throughout the generations in this you know last century um it became more of um 
you know, performances and, you know, a, a sort of tourist and audience centered situation where the, st the stage was introduced. And now, you know, there's more groups that have formed to pass on the tradition. I think it's very important to understand that when we talk about who started this and who's responsible for passing it on, um, it, that, that's really, uh, there's not one specific answer, but there's one that is obvious that we have known for a long time and we have to really give credit to the Cepedas. This, this is one of the oldest generations in Puerto Rico that goes over four generations, right? So, so we're talking, when we, when we say over four generations, you were talking about at least over 400 years of, of, of this music. Um, and then you have the Ayalas, uh, the Aduens, um, the Negrons. Um, and as we get to learn more about this culture, because we're talk right now as we're talking about Bomba, we are still learning about it. So, so, so it's an open book. And, and each day, there's a, it's like finding a treasure. We find something, we learn something new that's really older than what we already know. Right. Right? So this is still an ongoing process, and I think that, but the bottom line for us, what does Bomba really talk to us as an identity when we're talking about Puerto Ricans that are music that really derived, originated from the African diaspora, which is what's important for us to understand that this is important because... One thing that uh, is very dominating in, our, in this culture is our Spanish roots. But when we're talking about the African roots, this, this part of it has been suppressed, um, marginalized. And so this is a big story in, 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 that we need to really understand that why Bomba is, is behind and not forward and present in our culture as Puerto Ricans, you know, having a consensus of that understanding. And... Uh Around the 70s, it almost died out. Why, why did that happen? Or how after 300 years, it, that, that time period, it, you started to almost lose this tradition? You're talking about the industrialization of <coughs> excuse me, Puerto Rico. And in that, in that case, around in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, Puerto Rico experienced uh, a large, massive migration to New York City and other parts of the, the country. Um, in fact, you know, they were coming to, to work in, in places like Williamsburg and Red, Red Hook and all throughout the Brooklyn waterfront communities uh, to work as um, low-wage labor. Um, and so, you know, you're taking, much like in, in the process of, of slavery and then taking, you know, all of your talent and resources and human resources, you know, in slavery it was taken from Africa and, like, millions of people were were gone, you know, vanished, um, and it sort of decimates the pop, you know, the population. Traditions disappear and, and change, um, and so you have uh, this sort of void and, and vacancy of people just up and leaving the island, you know, looking for for work, and um, sort of the family structure even gets changed and rearranged around. One of the things that I, I want to touch on is you mentioned that like uh, it you introduced it to tourism, um, the stage was in, uh, also like brought into the tradition. Uh, what was it before? Before it was more tourism? Was it just mostly for families or communities? Was it a way of keeping tradition alive? Or what role did it play um, before it was like a tourist angle? Well, uh, again, when we talk about certain families that we could all really give credit to in reference to a tradition that's passed on from generation to generation. How many, how many people we know personally that we know that have done that as a family? Not, I'm not talking about like maybe one person in your family doing bomba and the rest of them are not doing. We're talking right. about as a whole family, right. right? There's only a handful 
Mm-hmm. There's really a, a, only a handful. I'm I'm doing bomba, but I'm the only one in my family doing right. it, right? So, uh, and that's now that it, I did not grow up with it, and so I'm not the only one with this with this problem. And I and I state it as a problem because it's it's a disconnection from your own culture, not understanding what you know bomba as an identity and just looking at it as an entertainment as a music style, right? Um, so. There are very few families, and again, and I mentioned those, you know, when we talk about the Cepedas, the Aduens, the Nadas, the Negrons, these are the very few families that probably passed it on to generation to generation. Right. And how did, you, how did you come to Boma? If you didn't grow up with it, how did you get into the tradition? That happened, it was an accident. Uh, <laughs> it was an accident. I was giving a workshop um, on, on congas, and and and... Um, I had a workshop that was called the Gospel of the Masacote back in 2001. And I was in a union um, building and doing a workshop. And then a group of people came in, and I remember this particular person. It was Roberto Cepeda and Tito Cepeda as they're walking in, and they were doing a plena workshop. Um, and I didn't know what plena was. So at the time, Tito Cepeda... Um, who passed away now, um, asked me to borrow my congas to do this presentation. I sat in to watch. Um, and as they were talking about it, you know, they were talking about this music and, and, and that is from Puerto Rico. And me being Puerto Rico, being Puerto Rican and never been at Puerto Rico. So um, it was after 40 years of my life that I first went to Puerto Rico. That's, wow. that's how disconnected right. I, I was from my own culture. And so... During this workshop, I said, wow, I need to know more. And um, so right immediately after that, there was a advertisement. Hugo Asensio, who also passed away, was giving a workshop on Plana. And I went to that workshop, and that's how I got into the Bomba. It's amazing. Um, so interesting. It's a very specific setup and a very specific protocol. Can you walk us through the, the instruments and then how, since it's radio, how the setup would be if you were to watch it? Well, there are two, there are two principal drums, right? Uh, you may, when you look at it, you may see 5, 10, 20. Out of the 20, 19 will be a bulliador drum that plays the, the bass rhythm. And, and again, when I say the bass rhythm is that in Bomba, our rhythms have names. So it's not just one particular rhythm that is played. The rhythms are, you know, they do have a, a definition that talks about the dance and the style. So, for example, if we're going to be doing a rhythm called Sika, right? The, um, so, Mike, give me a Sika, right? Just... And that's the Puliado drum. Now, I may come in with the other drum that's called the primo, but usually the primo, keep playing, because, um, beautiful, um, when a dancer comes out to dance, this other drum is communicating with the dancer, and it's the dancer that's making the drum talk. So I'm responding, this other drum called the primo will respond to a particular movement that comes from the dancer. Saw that right? Yeah. So, so for people who are in here, the uh, one of the dancers moving her skirt, and the drum was in response to the movement of the skirt. So that other drum came into. Right? 
Does the is there a different place on the drum where you play depending on where the body is moving from? Does the, do the shoulders and the hips have a different, and the feet have different places or different rhythms? Well, this is where yeah, uh, well, not different rhythm. I, the drummer, the primo, yeah. will interpret it mm. with a particular sound. I may use a snap tone. I may use the open tone. I may use the bell tone. Right. Um, and again, that's um, that's by discretion of the drummer. I may do a snap. The other drummer may do an open tone, mm. right? Um, each drummer has a certain way of the, how they're going to interpret that particular movement. But again, it, it's directed by the dancer. I can see a very important uh, relationship between the dancer and the drummer that could take years to develop. Um, is that part of the culture? Just well, I, I want to. We do have. Uh, we have a dancer here who has a, 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 a strong background in dancing, and I would like to have her input on that. Yasma Cruz, uh, you know, I would like to for you to please have some Hi. input on this. Hi. Okay, well, one of the beauties of Bomba, which is what you just saw, that the dancer communicates with the drummer. It doesn't necessarily have to be many years to develop that. It's part of the dance already. Mm. As, as soon as you step into that bate, as we call it, you salute the drum. You mm. say hi to the drum to whoever is doing that, who to whoever is playing that primo, and from there you take it on. You might not necessarily know who's we call subiendo on the drum, but that relationship is established since the beginning, since the very first beginning. And I would like to add something very important. You asked why it was maybe it wasn't there. The presence of the bomba wasn't there many years ago. This is a culture and a dance that has been persecuted, suppressed. suppressed. Mm. So for us doing this many years ago, you get beaten, you get killed. Like there were people who could not step into a bomba dancing. If you were from another part of the island, if you maybe were doing a plena, if you were doing something else, you could get cut. I've known people because I've interviewed people who have shown me scars. This is from a bomba dance. And where does the violence, where does it originate from? It's not that the violence is originated from there. It's just that this was the only space that the slave had to communicate, to feel that they were humans. This, it was usually on Sundays. That was their free day. And as the masters started to realize, they will use, like, we use Spanish, but we sing many songs that are not in Spanish. We don't even know exactly what they mean because it was a combination we're not having people coming from one part of Africa. We're having people coming from different countries, right? We're having people in Puerto Rico already. So all the mix, this is the common language, the music, the song, and the dance. So all the words that could maybe appear similar, that's what they were using. And they will play a bomba in a part of the island, and that will carry a message over another place. So they were communicating. And as soon as they realized that, they were like, we need to stop this. We need to cut any form that they have of getting together because maybe it's a threat for them. Mm, um, we've talked about a lot of the popularity of, of Puerto Rico and the resurgence both of the food and the music. Um, you had mentioned earlier there are some negative potential effects of the rise of popularity bomba. What what are some of some of those? What are some of the negative side effects or do you see anything uh, negative? Well, I, I think that you know, going back to piggyback on yeah. what, what Yasma was talking about, when we're talking about a particular era, we, we, and it's hard to... When we're talking about the bomba today, that's why I say there's not one story. You cannot mm. just relate it to one story, because then we're going to lose 
of what you know we're not going to get the picture of what we're doing today because what we're doing today does not reflect on let's say when we're dancing today we're not dancing with that same emotion and that you're let's say you're going to lose your life or you can't do bomba today you can do bomba right. so it's a different emotion it's a different expression in the dance that's not the same dance it's not the it's not coming from that but what we have to talk about is that why today when we're still when we're looking at Bomba why is it still a problem because it originated from that time and era that what you're talking about that when we're talking about in Puerto Rico you have to understand that right before 1873 there was slavery mm -hmm. so we have to understand that who, that this was the group from 1873 and back behind that that was the group that was doing Bomba it right. was not the Spanoles on the island that were doing the Bombas right so this is the a very important conversation that this is why we still have to sit at the table and understand what that means because there are different errors in Boma and if we identify the errors we can now see that from this era this is what happened now we're today we're doing this Boma it's not what they're saying because you got people dancing who don't care about that story who don't care about that history this is what the problem is and this is where we tie it into Black Lives Matters mm. right this is a This is an issue, and bomba is really one of the music, out of all the styles of music, that elevates our consciousness, that really reminds us of what that means. And, and so bomba is important for us for that, for that reason. I want to add a little bit more to that, too, is that um, <clears throat> historically uh, in the United States, about 5% of all of the Africans that were brought were brought to the United States. And all throughout the Caribbean, South America, Central America, you talk about 95% or the majority of people, uh, of Africans were brought to those regions too. So sometimes we tend to like, you know, regionalize things or, you know, just by geography and, and political lines. But when we look at a broader, what we call African diaspora, you know, that reaches all the way from Canada, the United States, the Caribbean, South, Central America and South America. That's a family, that's a cultural identity. And when we look at Bomba and we look at other traditions similar to um, Belé in Guadeloupe, I mean, in Martinique, and um, Guoca in uh, Guadeloupe, um, those traditions are very similar to Bomba, and, but you can go down the, all the coasts, you know, into Colombia and Brazil and, and so many traditions that are African-based that, you know, you feel a sense of, of familiarity to it. You know that this is connected in a really, really strong way. Jazz, you know, there's a, a foundational element, there's an improvisational element to most of this music. And, you know, th that's, the, that's the, sh the strong connection. So I think when we think of a Black Lives Matter, you know, we may consider it like a, a movement within the United States, but real in reality, it's a really movement within the African diaspora to give ourselves value and to tell people that th these things need to be valued and not marginalized, um, whether they're black lives, black lives is connected to black music, black food, all these traditions that come from an origin of Of, of slavery, of, of Africanness, you know, it, it's it's time now. Before there was the civil rights movement, and that didn't actually exist in, in Latin America. There were no civil rights movement. There wasn't any that, you know, there was a push. But this this right now has momentum, and you know, I think it's important, like Jose said, to connect, you know, the connectivity and intersectionality of these things. They're not they're not in packaged in a box. And I think when you talk about the negative effects, one of those could be you know, commercializing or popularizing things like we know salsa to be 
has been sort of packaged and then sent out to the world. Mm. And I think that that's one of our concerns is that, you know, somebody wants to, you know, huge record companies or, you know, industries want to sort of package and see Bomba as something to popularize and commercialize. And we understand it, you know, to be such a strong part of our, our cultural identity. And, we, you know, we definitely don't want that. We want more people to oh, know about it, certainly. You can't separate the music from the past. Right. Right. I understand. Well, I want to make sure that we have time for a song and to let you do what you're going to do. So um, you're going to close us out on a song. Uh, but I will first want to thank uh, all our guests today for PR Meets NYC. I can't wait to go out there and eat the food and see the dancing and the music. Um, thank you for uh, everyone for listening today. Hello to my family. Hello to Ornella. Um, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Uh, is there a name for the final song or what are you going to take us out on? Yeah, uh, no me quiere a mí. Okay, thank you. Uh, here we go. Bombayo live on Snacky Tunes.
Network.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.